On the regenerative journey, our goal is to nurture and facilitate the lives and journeys of all our followers, which is why we've teamed up with resource consulting service, RCS, Australia's leading provider of education and advisory services in regenerative agriculture. RCS trains and consults across the ag sector from individuals and families through to corporates and even government, empowering people to grow productive and profitable businesses in diverse and, importantly, healthy landscapes. They understand that the future of healthy families, resilient communities and regenerative farming lies in holistic education. Over the last 15 years, I've played an integral role in my own regenerative journey. And I have a lot to thank RCS for, and I'm one of 7,500 others who have attended their farming and grazing for profit course. I don't know where I'd actually be, uh, and I certainly wouldn't be this far down my own regenerative journey if I hadn't completed a significant amount of training with the RCS team. I can't recommend more highly uh, RCS to anyone looking to start their regenerative journey in a supportive and proven environment. Terry, McCosker and your team, you absolutely rock. And we're also absolutely stoked to be collaborating with them now. For my listeners only, we're offering a 10% discount on all farming and grazing for profit schools and grazing clinics in Australia this year. If you add this to the early bird rate of a seven-day school, you could get a whopping $1,000 off the standard price. Simply add the code CHARLIERCS, that's CHARLIERCS, that's one word, at the checkout to get your concession. How awesome is that? Now head to the show notes to find out more. As soon as you start thinking about the earth as your mother, if you respect your mother, you will not hurt her. You will do anything you can for her comfort and for her recognition. I'd put that through the mother. We come through the mother's heart. That was Bruce Pascoe, and you're listening to The Regenerative Journey. From wherever we are, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia, recognising their continuing connection to this land, its waterways, the stars in the skies since time immemorial. We pay our respects to the elders, knowledge holders and to all the generations of First Nations peoples who have nurtured their unceded sovereign lands for over 80,000 years and continue to do so today. G'day, I'm your host, Charlie Arnott, an eighth-generational Australian regenerative farmer. And in this podcast series, I'll be diving deep and exploring my guests' unique perspectives on the world so you can apply their experience and knowledge to cultivate your own transition to a more regenerative way of life. Welcome to The Regenerative Journey with your host, Charlie Arnott. G'day and welcome back to The Regenerative Journey and we are looking at, or you're about to listen to, the last episode of Season 5 in The Regenerative Journey and I've absolutely loved Season 5, I've had a really good mix of people. Um, I have been pushing the boundaries of um, of, t- of time for Reese to, um, to get... <laughs> to get edited this one in particular because it's um it's a day or two after i've interviewed bruce pascoe who is our guest on this last episode for season five and um it's coming out only in a few days time uh six days five days time so (laughs) reese has done very well to keep up um not keep up actually the other way around to just push on um, and we're looking forward to a break. Um, for those of you who are Patreon members, excuse me, I'm just going to have a cough here. <coughs> excuse, <coughs> excuse me. 
truths. Uh, for those who are pat- Patreon members, um, we're going to sp- sp- how do you say it? Splatter, spatter, something. We're going to we're going to inter- intersperse the Q and A sessions that we've been doing with the, our guests um, throughout the season. Um, between seasons, so you'll actually have something to listen to um, between seasons, and I trust that's of uh, some value. Those are not as long as the <coughs> excuse me interviews um, themselves, by any means, but they're certainly um, a continuation. And um, I've got a you know, pretty standard set of questions I ask, and you know what you are, what what they, what questions they are. If you're a Patreon members, um, I think you should anyway. So <coughs> we're going to do that between seasons, which is awesome. Um, back to the current. State of play. Look, politics. Um, the election has been won. <coughs> Excuse me. Results um, announced, except for, um, and I could be wrong. I just had a bit, bit look, a bit of a look on Duck Duck Go. Um, if anyone wants an alternative to the other normal search engine, take a look at Duck Duck Go. Anyway, it's not a plug for them. I'm not getting paid for that. Just find it pretty good. Um, I could not find a definite result for David Pocock, who's going for the Senate in the ACT. I interviewed Dave um, here, gee whiz, it was about, it'd be over 12 months ago now, have to be over 12 months ago, might have been season three, <clears throat> or maybe even season two, anyway, um, lovely fellow, had a really good yarn here at Hannah Minow, just completed um, with Emma. His wife, a two-day introduction to Biodynamics Workshop, and... Um, it was yeah, so we had a good yarn, and he is running for the Senate there, um, and I think he's going to get up. All the little reports I've read and things I've been following on his on his um, on his site uh, suggesting it's going to be a close call. It may be called within days because it's now ten days. I think it's ten days after the election, taking some time. But I trust that Dave will get in there and um, do his bit as he said he would, and I believe he will. So all power to. to um, uh, to Dave, there, it's pretty cold here in Burrowa. We are um, we've hit winter. Um, it, it was sort of you know it was autumny for, for for most of the most of autumn as you expect. But it's funny how I don't know in Australia we have um, you know indigenous um, people say you know it could be sixteen seasons. It, it's it's certainly not a cut and dry four seasons like. You know, I guess traditionally nor- the northern hemisphere. <coughs> I'm not sure because there's less sort of land mass in the southern. Uh, I think it's fair to say there's less land mass generally in the southern hemisphere than is the northern. Whether well, that has an influence on it, but nonetheless, we don't have four straight seasons here, Borua. Um We're supposed to be a Mediterranean climate traditionally, but I don't know if that's kind of the, you can really yeah, pigeonhole us that much either. But my point is that uh, autumn is kind of you know, what's gone, it's gone officially of today um, and it's really is winter's gone, look, I'm just going to make sure you understand that I'm here. But normal, normal for Borua, you know, cold, wet, uh, pretty cold. Um, yeah, so anyway, nonetheless, that's what we've got. What else can I bang on about before I get on to Bruce, which was such a wonderful interview the other day, I have to say, in front of a live audience. RCS Convergence, of course, on the 16th and 17th of July, and I'll be there, and I'll be interviewing, <clears throat> excuse me, a number of people um, uh, 
at the conference. Well, maybe not at the conference, maybe after or even before. I'm just going to work it out because there's some wonderful – it's a collection of some amazing speakers. Um, some will be virtual um, and most, I think, will be will be in person now that restrictions have eased somewhat. So pretty excited about that. Um, the guys at RCS have been um, uh, very generous in – dare I say, allowing access to some of those people, but we'll work on that. But that's going to be really exciting too, um, and that's going to sort of start um, uh, building a, a a backlog. That's not the, probably the word to use, is it? A, a reservoir, no, a um, a collection, that's a better word, a collection of interviews for season six, uh, which we have not announced or thought of um, a, a release date yet, a kick-off date, launch, um, but nonetheless... There'll be there'll be plenty to do, and we're doing a, a road trip in a caravan with the family up in uh, up into Queensland in a few weeks' time for um, workshops up there. Three workshops, which I'm sure you've heard about. <clears throat> um, I trust you have if you've been listening to any of these other other interviews for season five. We'll be up at um, Claremont uh, on the oh gee whiz Monday. Let me just work it out. Monday is it Monday and Tuesday? Um, let's work backwards. 2021, 20, 20, 20, 20, Yeah, it's 20th and 21st of June at Claremont. It's just north of Claremont, actually. Um, and then on the 20, oh, on the Saturday, Sunday, um, which would be, oh, bugger, bugger it up, for, uh, 25th, 26th of June, we're going to be at Bilawila. And then on the 29th, 30th uh, of June, we'll be at the Sunshine Coast there. So get your tickets ASAP. And if you do want to grab a ticket, You'll get a, um, a, a um, almanac from Phoebe from Alcamilla, who's a fantastic biodynamic flower farm down in Victoria. And I'm dying to get down there because I've just seen her stuff. Go and follow her on Instagram and so on. And it's just amazing. This the, this the, the abundance and the amount of this the color and the, the the health and beauty of those flowers is incredible. Um, so if you're in Victoria and you want a bunch of flowers, get onto her and see how that easy you can you can do that. It's just amazing. Anyway, so she has put together over the last few years an almanac and we've got the 2022 almanac um, to give to any ticket buyer um, from now on for our workshops up there in Queensland. And it's got cosmic cycles, lunar cycles. Uh, it's got spots that you can um, uh, record your gardening and farming sort of activities Lots of guides and charts, and wonderful, um, you know, step by step sort of, or step you through the process of understanding um, all of that cool um, uh, lunar and cosmic cycles, and how it, how that can help you with your your plantings and your activities in the garden and the farm. So that's a recommended retail price of sixty dollars, and you get it for nothing. And we are so grateful for um, Phoebe's. Um, uh, generous support of um, of our workshops, and we just love what she's doing down there, in Victoria. Um, what else have we got to bang on about? That's probably about it. I think I've banged on enough. How long's that? Gee whiz, eight minutes. Get on to Bruce Pascoe. Caught up with Bruce live. Ryan Watson, the Fairlight Butcher, um, there in Sydney in Fairlight. Um, believe it or not, he um, put together an event the other night. Um, with Bruce and Bruce very kindly flew up from from Victoria and spoke with the kids there at one of the schools, one of the public schools that Ryan organised, and um, then he spoke with us in the evening um, at the Manly Life Church. Um, Tim there, awesome guy, it just uh, let us use the church again, church hall again. I, I mean, I, I don't know, you better listen to the interview because I'm not going to 
do half a, half as good a job as explaining what he said, and it's not the point. It's just just I love the way Bruce just articulates, <clears throat> and his um, the way he can um, <clears throat> kind of give practical and talks about practical steps towards. He, well, he calls it, and, and, and I understand now why, conciliation, not reconciliation. I think it's a really important point. As he said, reconciliation is kind of what, he, what you do after both parties have sinned, you know. There's been, there's been there's, you know, both reconcile because there, there needs to be some some changes and acknowledgement that they're, they're both sides have sinned. And as, you know, I, I tend to agree, you know, in this whole <coughs> Indigenous um, debate or whatever, you know, whatever you want to sort of describe it. Um, I don't know if they really sinned. You know, as he said, they've done bad things, um, but we all can and we all have and you know, we all will. Um, we're human. Um, but his point is it's a conciliation, which puts the emphasis, <coughs> excuse me, somewhat back on to us, um, you know, us white, <coughs> excuse me, white Aussie Anglos to, um, to make the effort. And, and and we and we and we should and we will. Um, so conciliation is the word, not reconciliation. I think. I mean, I'm not trying to um, offend anyone there. I trust I'm not offending anyone. Uh, however, Bruce sets it out pretty plainly, as he did the whole interview. It was engaging. We had a room full of people who I, I assume had, probably had sore bums, but they they seemed to love it, and um, just really appreciate Ryan for getting that organised. Tim for the church. And Uncle Bruce Pascoe for giving us his time, flying all the way from Victoria just for the day, and he flew back the next day. And his wealth of of, of, of wisdom it was just awesome. So I hope you enjoy this um, first live um, recording uh, I've done, and it was it was actually actually worked really well. It was really interactive and fun. And um, the chat I had with with Uncle Bruce, I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. Uh, I just wanted to say a big shout out to. Um, my team here at the Regenerative Journey. Um, this is, as I said earlier, this is the last episode for season five. It's been a cracker. Really enjoyed it, uh, and just big, big, enormous, wonderfully large shout-outs to um, uh, Reese Edward Jones for his um, his amazing <laughs> his patience and the way just just things just appear and happen and get things done. Uh, the way he edits our um, uh, our interviews, as you know, we don't really edit them at all um, from go to woe unless I go and drain the spuds for a minute and there's just a hollow silence. Uh, or children turn up and um, trash the place, uh, <laughs> which has happened before. So Reese is amazing the way you can do that. Uh, Fiona Turney, who has been uh, with me for a few years now, and she's just awesome. She keeps me on track, keeps things rolling along in the background and and uh, has been an absolute integral part of the team um, and, and so, Fiona, thank you very much. Angelica, uh, my wife and my family, Lordy and Lilla and Venus and Persia and everyone who supports what we do, um, it's you know, just just an awesome thing. Um, RCS, big thank you to them for their sponsorship during the Season 5. Um, I do that not just because... Um, uh, you know, it's a it's a commercial deal or anything. It's it's because they've had such an interesting, not interesting, that's the wrong word. Such an you know, integral um, part to play in my own regenerative journey. And you know, it's it's uh, they're, they're an awesome organisation, awesome um, uh, you know mob for training. And the conference that's coming up uh, in the middle of July is just a really good. Um, this highlights the the depth and breadth of their their contacts and their influence and and their intention to um, 
to to transform to transform people's lives, you know, their businesses, their lives, their families, and their and their landscape. Um, so big thank you to them. Who else? Oh, I hope I haven't forgotten anyone. I probably have. All my team here at Hannah Minnow as well. Um, Jim and Brock and, and Tessa and Jane and um, Graham and we're just, you know, Angelica and I are eternally grateful for the for the effort and the time that they put into, um, you know, we're, we're away a lot and, and the way that the farm ticks over and, um, well, more than ticks over, you know that um, a feeling of abundance and um, and yeah you know, and, and life vitality. It's it's fantastic. So thank you guys for for that as well. Uh, who have I got? Fiona and Reese and Angelica, the family. Oh, all my guests, all my guests for just the time they spend. Um, hopefully, it's not too tedious sitting with me having a yarn for an hour and a half or so. Um, really appreciate the time they've put in. We've got lots of guests coming up for season six, um, and you, the listener. You, the listener, who you don't have to listen. There's plenty, so many podcasts out there, really good ones. Um, even in, in the regenerative ag space, you know, there's just there's a plethora of really good ones out there too. So the fact that you're listening to this and you've may hopefully or may have listened to other other episodes blows my socks off, and I'm just really really pleased at you know um, how much support we get and how many lovely comments we get as well. Um, we do have had we have had comments about you know maybe I should talk less in interviews. Um, and I, I take that on board 100%. Um, I actually don't know if I talk a hell of a lot. If you did the sort of the, the percentages on it, I don't know if it'd be, I don't know, don't know what it'd be. Um, however, I actually get many, many, many more comments saying we just love the style, the conversation of it all, that they feel like they're sort of eavesdropping, you know, on a yarn, you know, with a cup of tea around a kitchen table, which is what we're trying to do. So, um, don't think I'm going to reduce, you know, the amount of time I spend. And it depends on the guest, too. I mean, for those who don't <coughs> interview people, it's really how you run it, um, you know how the how the interview is going, and whether you feel you need to sort of help the guest along with a bit of chit chat, or they feel you feel you understand the rapport that you have, or the <clears throat> some want to chat, some want to have a conversation. Like Rachel Ward, trying to turn it right round on me. That's a classic, but a good example, you know. So um, there's no formula to it. That's it. That's that one. And Patreon members, you're the best. You're awesome. You support me um, every week. Um, every month, and it's I couldn't couldn't do it without you. To be honest, um, the fact that you you know you spend your ten dollars or so a month, um, you get those extra bits, the, the 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 transcripts, the weekly videos, the monthly webinars. Um, you'll be getting the Q and A soon too, as well between seasons. Just awesome, and you don't have to do it, and you do. So, all power to you, and I much appreciated. And we're live. We're on. Um, Bruce Pascoe. Welcome to the Regenerative Journey and welcome to the, oh, Tim, I've forgotten the name of the church hall. Manly Life Church. Which one? Manly Life Church. It was on the outside. Welcome um, to Manly Life Church Hall. Uh, we did a gig here last year, or well, you didn't, I did with Charlie Massey, um, and it was wonderful, and it's lovely to be back. We couldn't even work out. Anyone remember, was it 20, 2021 or 2020 we did that gig? Anyone remember? Jason Little, you remember? Was it, it was two years ago. Awesome. Okay, it doesn't matter, <clears throat> but we're back and it's a lovely thing. Bruce, um, I'm going to start. Traditionally, I start with, um, oh, I'm sure you know because you've listened to all my podcasts, um, that I easily start and I in- interview my guests in their um, their happy place. So that's their garden, their, their home if they haven't got a garden or their farm or their veranda or something. <clears throat> but we're not at Malacuta. Um, we're a long way from that. So I'm just going to give you a bit of thinking time, 
And I want to read one of the most beautiful quotes that I captured probably a year or two ago um, on a webinar you did with Murray Pryor um, and his organisation. He sort of set that up, and I can't remember who else was on it, but I was just blown away with this. And I listened to it. I was in the car. I was um, on a webinar recording. And what this passage just blew my socks off. And you, you, wrote, you, you said it, and I actually don't know. <laughs> You've got them back on. I know they're back on now. They're a bit smelly. Um, but what I thought is, how can someone just come up with these words? But I guess you are a writer, so it's not surprising. And this is what you said. I had to go, part, go back and like play the recording, and I had to write it down. We want those good Australians to say... We've talked enough about reconciliation. We're not going to bring in the army again. We're going to bring in the school teacher and the nurse and the farmer and as many of those will be black as we can make it. This is our vision for our country, our ambition for our country, I'm sorry. And at a time somewhere in the future, we'll come to an agreement with each other about the past and the present and the future. And during that process, we will make a nation. And I'll tell you what, that was the most beautiful thing I think I've ever read. <clears throat> it was in the context, um, it was just a wonderful thing. And I wanted to start with that because for me, that just gives me um, goosebumps. And I've talked enough now. Bruce, welcome to Regenerative Journey. What does it feel like to be Bruce Pascoe sitting in a, ch- in a church hall in, uh, in Fairlight, in Manly, um, miles from home, with a you know, primarily white Anglo-Australian kind of audience. It feels cold, um, which is why I've got my coat on, for which I apologise, but, um, yeah, I froze a bit today. Look, I, um, I, I feel very strongly that um, this country has a, a really... Uh, we're on the brink of having a different future than we might have had. Uh, when you look at our defence partner, America, and um, how they routinely kill children over there, and then um, then their ex-president says, oh, the only way to stop a bad man with a gun is to you know, have him shot by a good man with a gun, um, but not explaining how you choose between the good and the bad or even uh, identify that person. This is the future that I, uh, I don't want for this country. You know, my family is, you know, 80% white, so I, I cannot um, act as if the rest of the country doesn't matter, um, and nor can I act as if... Aboriginal ancestry doesn't matter either. Uh, it's a it's a difficult line um, to walk, but um, I I want a future for this country that is not American. First Nation Americans were bought off with casinos. Um, the health of those people is appalling. Um, as is the health of Australian Aboriginal people, but it might be better. And uh, to want better 
is not a left-wing sentiment. It's human decency. And that's what I want for this country. I'd, I'd like to think that our better, our better angels will have more influence in the future. And I was stunned last weekend to hear the, the Prime Minister in his first words to the nation say that we are going to adopt the uh, letter to the heart um, in full. Um, you know, the Uluru Statement. I, I was shocked. I wasn't expecting it. And then Penny Wong repeated it. Um, it, seemed, it seemed sincere and it seems like those people are determined to deliver it. That'll change our nation forever because the Uluru Statement is such a gently worded document. As a writer, I've always been jealous of it. Um, and I've often, I've often wondered who wrote it because I'm, I, I felt convinced that it was an individual, you know, because committees don't write like that. It's beautifully worded. It is, in the future, going to be the thing that we read out when we host the Olympic Games, when we host the Commonwealth Games. It, it is such a transfixing document because it is from the heart. Um, I feel very confident that we're, we're going to have a better future and we can do it together and we can do it with pride. Everyone can have, take pride in it and everyone can um, feel uplifted by it. It's not going to be without its bruises and without its arguments. Um, when you come from so far back, that journey is hard on the feet and the soul. Um, it's not going to be without pain. We can't expect it to. Um, but I can see the possibility of it. I certainly don't want a nation that is so divided psychologically that we accept the fact that children get shot in their classroom. <clears throat> just, just back to the the new government. How? Because I was interested to see that also, and you know, the first the press conference, um, the Indigenous flag and the what was um, Torres Strait Islander flag was up. I mean, how can we? So that's a bold upfront statement, which is on the you know outset wonderful. How can we keep them accountable for this? What, what looks like a sincere kind of a um, effort? Well, we held the other mob accountable by voting, and so the vote is a very uh, treasured item, and we should insist on maintaining the vote for everybody in the country, not just some, uh, because it, it makes everyone think about politics, whether they want to or not, and... Um, not just some people. Um, so I, th I think the vote's very important. But it's also action. Um, it's not really about... You know, words are good, but action is huge. And it, what, what has always dismayed me is that people uh, talk floridly about relationships with Aboriginal people, um, but nothing much is delivered. Um, we've had recent experience of working with non-Aboriginal people where the big mission was um, the promotion and ambition 
of the non-Aboriginal person and using black people to get there, um, being Don Quixote's horse. And we don't want that anymore. We're not going to accept that um, as the process. Uh, so, But there are so many good Australians. I've, I've, I meet them everywhere with good hearts, um, sometimes a bit of lacking in knowledge, but I think there's enough of those people to understand that um, if you're going to eat our food, uh, you're going to have to swallow our history in this country. Will Australia will have to accept the fact there was a war in this country. Aboriginal people lost the war and lost the land as a process, and this is the uh, one of the only wars ever fought in the world where no settlement has taken place afterwards. Um, and it, it amazes New Zealanders, for instance, when they come here, who, who seem sorely embarrassed by the ignorance shown by Australians about Aboriginal people and Aboriginal land and Aboriginal history. Um, we, we can't separate Aboriginal history from Australian history. They are one. And I read in the paper today from uh, one of the uh, new members of Parliament uh, saying that it shouldn't surprise people that um, all Australians can take pride, not just in 230 years, but 120,000 years. Why wouldn't you want to? Why wouldn't you want to associate with a society as successful as that? Um, I, I think the future is, is bright. We might leave it there, Bruce. Yeah, let's go home. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, Bruce, I want to take you back to um, your life as a young man or a young boy, as far back as you want to go, because this is about your regenerative journey. And um, it's not farming is something that you, um, I don't know about interested in, you may have been interested for some time, but I guess took up later on in life. But it, this is about not regenerative farming necessarily, though that is part of your, your journey. It's about, <clears throat> I guess, a journey of regeneration, you know, mentally, physically, culturally. So how far back do you want to go, Bruce? Where, what do you come from? Where? The womb? Oh, King On. King On? Yeah. What, what age? I'd, I'd love the womb at the moment. I, you know, um, it would be lovely and warm. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, King On, I, I became really conscious of country on King On. What, what age were you then? Uh, seven, eight, nine. I'm, yeah. Uh, when I was on the island. Um, my father was um, a really good man, but he was a bit erratic. Um, really solid family man, but um, a wanderer. And um, he, um, he left a really good job and took us to King Island. We, you know, we had cousins on the island, but um, he worked in the mine down there until the mine closed, and he worked in the hardware shop until that closed and then he worked on cray boats and um, and then my mother got really sick and we left the island and came back to Victoria uh, so she could be um, looked after but the island was 15 miles long by four wide and a kid could uh, leave home and walk across it and come back uh, in time for lunch um, 
or stay over there and fish and cook fish on the beach. So for me, that was... I learnt so much about animals um, and about being um, self-reliant. And so I went... I, um, my father couldn't keep us at school, um, so he told my sister and I that we would have to get a, a scholarship if we wanted to go to university. And thanks to Bob Menzies, um, Liberal um, Prime Minister at the time, who offered scholarships to working-class kids. You know, who you wouldn't see that today, but that's what it was like in those days, that Menzies wanted working-class kids at university. I got one of those scholarships. I became, you had to be a school teacher. Um, and um, I loved teaching. I loved kids. Um, we were at uh, Mossman School uh, earlier today and fabulous bunch of kids asking really interesting questions and giving really interesting answers. You know, the future's bright while you've got kids who think. And so that, that was a joy for me um, to be, to be with, involved with kids for so long. Um, and... Yeah, what was the question again? Um, yeah. It wasn't real, yeah. as vague as ever, mm. Bruce, me, yeah, not be, you. I did become a farmer. When, when I, uh, I got a, a promotion to Malakuta School, and that's because no-one else wanted it, and uh, they were delighted to have someone apply. And <laughs> when, 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 what age? Uh, that's 1972. Yeah. And um, uh, I loved that school. I loved the town. I loved the country. And... I bought an old farm there and it had it'd been hammered um, and so I, I, I set about restoring you know, some of the soil health and uh, water quality and things like that. Um, but I couldn't afford what I was doing so I sold that eventually but now I'm back on a farm since four years ago and I'm doing the same thing. I was just saying before that... Um, since we got rid of the cattle and allowed grass to grow, and more importantly, um, allow grass to seed, our dams have n- never emptied. Um, before that, they looked ragged, you know, distraught-looking beasts. Um, but now that the water has slowed down, water seeps into those dams every day of, uh, of the year. Um, it's a great transformation. And... Um, We've our soil health has skyrocketed, you know what the and the the numbers of insects on the property has increased as well. We've stopped using poison. Um, it, it's really simple. One of the biggest expenses in farming is poisons and fertilisers, and sometimes it's hard to distinguish one from the other. And you know you stop doing that, and even though you may not get the bounce in the pasture that superphosphate will still give you. You know, those bright green pastures you see are made from superphosphate. But superphosphate's running out because, you know, 15 million years of bird shit can be consumed by one country in um, 70 years. Uh, That bounce is not going to be there all the time. So you have to, as a farmer, you now have to create soil. You have to be super conscious of it, and you are responsible for it, and not a bag 
uh, that you pay 120 bucks for. Really important that we learn the, the new economy of farming, which is to reduce um, chemical expenses and start growing perennial uh, grains and tubers. That's what we're doing on the farm at uh, Yumbra. Um, all our plants are perennial. So we can harvest them, but they remain in the ground. It makes an in- incredible difference. And, um, you know, that's how you build soil. Do you, <clears throat> you've just taken about, I don't know, 40 years or 30 years of your life out of there, Bruce, but we'll get back to that. Yeah. Oop, I better do that, that's better. 30, 40 years have just disappeared, we'll get back. However, while we're on, on the farm, do you, um, I'm just curious, you've got good perennial species there, native species, no doubt. Do you actively um, manage or by removing or focusing on the introduced species, like, uh, you know, um, I don't know what you'd have down there? Um, you know, oh, we've got non you know, non natives, uh, kaikuyu, flea yeah. bane, uh, inkweed, um, and now uh, Madagascan fireweed, which we got from the Bega Valley. You know, not we, we the previous farmer got it in a a roll of hay, hay and yeah. um, it just took off, and it's a really nasty weed, and we put a lot of work into that. We hand pull it. Um, but it was interesting. Uh, we, we were we were going pretty well with our crops, and then the fire came through 2019, 2020, and the farm burnt from fence to fence. Um, didn't lose the house, um, thanks to some good luck and good neighbours. And um, but it, we were a bit devastated because you know we, we were grassless for three weeks uh, on the property. And then it rained, and we got uh, Microlina stipoides became the dominant grass species. <coughs> Pardon me. And then we were able to um, turn that into flower. We didn't have a, a lot of it, but we had enough to prove that uh, we could manage um, our farm with fire, um, as long as we didn't overuse fire or underuse fire, as long as we worked out the old Aboriginal system, then we could always have grass. And that's what it's like. We had uh, four weeks ago, um, we burnt about 20 acres. And the previous year, uh, we burnt about seven. That seven acres was the best grass Mm. on our property this year. And it was all kangaroo (coughs) grass and spear grass but interestingly, it was also full of orchids. We'd never seen orchids on the farm before, but because we've stopped using super and poisons, the orchids are coming up and they're, they're edible. Interesting story, Charlie. Thank you for asking. He doesn't He might, doesn't want to yarn. I was going, I've got, I've got enough questions for him. We will, um, there's a, an orchid that used to be the dominant plant in Melbourne. The dominant plant in Melbourne. It was um, an, or- an orchid called Diurus fragrantissima. It's delicious to eat. And it was everywhere in Melbourne. It was the, the new arrivals in 1836 called it snow in the paddocks because that white flower was just everywhere. There are now 12 individual orchids left because of sheep. Sheep and cattle, soil compaction, it's virtually gone. 
and you must never repeat this. This won't go anywhere, don't worry. Hand on the heart, you're not going to repeat this. Um, <laughs> we approached um, a person involved in the restoration of the orchid and, t- and she said, what do you want to do with it? And we said, we want to eat it, um, which is to a botanist, it's horrible. Um, you're not supposed to eat plants. Especially if there's only like 12 left. Yeah, can, yeah. <laughs> can, but, I, can I have you know, three? Yeah. <laughs> no, we said no. We don't, we don't really want to eat those ones. Yeah. We want to make it as prolific um, as it was before because we didn't make it rare. Uh, our eating it didn't make it rare because we were managing it. We were nurturing that plant. Um, and... You know, that's. I would just like to restore this plant as a way of Australia um, learning to fall in love with each other again. Because one of the lovely stories about that orchid was that um, young lovers who want to impress each other were gathering armfuls of this flower and giving it to their loved one. Now, it doesn't say in the report whether it was men or women who were doing the giving or doing the accepting. Let's hope it was mutual. And what a lovely thing it was to give white flowers to your loved one. What a romantic gesture. We could do it again Mm. and we could still eat the bloody things. So the, the lily that's on, or the, sorry, the, the orchid that, that came up after the burn, was that particular one? Was it? No, no. Uh, well you had diurus, um, whatever it is, um, a yellow flowering one. Mm. It's the sister to that white orchid. Mm. But we've got the facilities on the farm now to grow and we've got the, the Aboriginal people there with the expertise to grow and nurture and uh, pot and sell. Um, it's all there. So my cousin Dave Wandon... Um, who is the great-grandson of William Barrack, and um, the Victorian government just bought back one of William Barrack's uh, paintings. You might have seen it on the, on the news. Um, and what I want to do from you and people, I want to make a gift of uh, that orchid back to my cousin because it's a gesture on our part. Uh, we are, brother, we are giving you something. We want, we want you to have this. We're not selling it, we, we're giving it away because we can do it. Um, you know, Dave could do it himself, but at the moment he doesn't have the facility. So we could do it and we want to rush into it and give it away so he can keep it. But I also see this as a real act of conciliation between white and black, that not only do we give it to Dave, we give it to everybody. And this can make a real statement, that white and black can work together to bring this plant back, just as we work hard to bring birds back and mice and um, bilbies and things like that that we've destroyed, mainly because of sheep. Um, We can bring it back and we can do this conciliation um, between us. Um, Instead of talking, you know, I don't believe in reconciliation because reconciliation means that both sides have 
uh, sinned. And I don't believe that Aboriginal people did. We're capable of sinning. I see it quite often. Um, but in the first instance, it wasn't our fault. So we don't want to reconcile. We want to conciliate um, between two groups. And I think we can do it through plants. And we can do it through um, white flowering plants that are called fragrantissima because they smell so sweet. That was a question you answered, Bruce. Thank you. Was that was kind of like I noticed you used the word conciliation, not reconciliation. So, thank you for defining that. And that's, you I mean I don't think you can argue with that. That's, um, I guess, that's the language that governments, councils, people, we got to start using, using that sort of language because it's acknowledging the history, not just uh, so, not just um, two two people's doing wrong and then trying to trying to make it make mm. it right. But what I love about your attitude, Bruce, is that, in an, as is in that quote there that I read it earlier, is there's so much that, you know, Indigenous people can be angry about, absolutely, um, but your, your attitude is one of conciliation and just getting on and, and doing it. And, and your farm is, is a great example of that. Um, when you had those fires, I mean, you, you'd written um, Dark Humor back in 2014, um, and we, we'll get back to that. But did you know? Was it the things like those fires and the and the microlina coming back, and then the orchids? I mean, that w- must have been fascinating. That you'd read so much about this, the bi- the biology and the the botany, and then you were actually experiencing it kind of accidentally. Was that kind of exciting? It, it was incredibly exciting and because um, all the people who work on the farm are, are mostly Ewan but also some other clans as well. Um, we, we witnessed it together and we had great days on our hands and knees ooing and ahhing over new plants. Um, and it was like a, a resurrection and it was, it was really thrilling to, to be there with the brothers and sisters while that was happening. They, were, they really were thrilling days. Um, but those young people, they saved me because the fires were really horrible, um, as you can imagine. And I didn't... Because of my family, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a bit of a stoic, you know, and I think... Um, I've always thought that I was bulletproof psychologically um, because of what what my parents went through. They had prepared me for just about anything. But um, after the fires, I realised that um, I wasn't as strong as I thought. But those young kids, you know, anyone under 60 is a kid to me, um, but... <laughs> Those young people, with their enthusiasm, and when I was struggling to get the energy, they'd say, come on, Unc, you know, we've got to get that shed up. Look at that bloody roof, you know, we've got to fix it. And they just, they nagged me and nagged me into action, and I'll never forget it. <clears throat> that, I interviewed um, Arna Rubenstein a few weeks ago, and that episode came out a few weeks ago, and he talks about rites of passage, and what struck me just then was your... I mean, do you consider yourself an elder? 
like as in have you did you go through a rite of passage whether it was kind of formal or otherwise where you you know took over different roles within your community your your farm it sounds like those you know the young bucks were running around g'ing you up but no doubt you've g'd them up and you are a mentor to them is there I mean, even in Indigenous culture, Australian Indigenous culture, is there a rite of passage for, certainly I understand there is from a, say a child to a youth or an adult, is there is there one from kind of that adult to an elder where you don't go down the line, you actually sort of, you, you may, you just change your role in the community? Is that sort of something that you've experienced or, or know of? And well, it's, um, it's something that Australia is going to need to know um, about... Um, contemporary Aboriginal society Um, but I'm not an elder I'm just older and I'm much older Um, we do law Um, people uh, in Australia need to know that South Coast, New South Wales East Coast, Victorian people we do law Um, I know uh, Paul Gordon in Western New South Wales does law, takes kids through all the time. So, But that doesn't consecrate you as an elder. It just teaches you good manners about country, how to treat country, how to treat people. Um, so, it's, you know, there's no, there's no chief, there's no leader. There is a circle, a circle of people um, who work together and that's what it was always like and that's what we try to replicate not just on the farm with the farming techniques uh, using the cool burns to promote growth um, not using poisons you know that's that's our old traditional way of looking after country but we do it socially and psychologically as well and that helps people I'm I'm as much led by those young people on the farm as they're led by me Make no mistake, because a lot of those fellas have grown up at their grandfather and grandmother's knee uh, learning story. I didn't get that um, in my early days. When uh, when my uncle started talking to me about culture, there was no-one else in the family that I could ask about it because it was a closed shop. Um, That family had um, closed the book on that side of life, uh, particularly... um, one side of the family and for very good reason because in, in the state they lived in if you were Aboriginal you got shot it was a really wise decision not to get shot and um, you know so the, deni- it, it's not real denial is it, it's um, looking after your kids so that they can grow up, that's a, a huge compulsion in the human spirit to look after your children and so I don't, I don't blame that family. Um, and, but now my son goes through law and my grandson has started. So, and my granddaughters too, although I won't have anything to do with that, um, they too have begun a, a journey. Uh, Australia needs to know that. They don't need to know much about it. You know, you don't want to be a sticky beak. All you need to know is that the law continues in this country. It's not an aphorism. You know, it's not something we say um, to be impressive because there's nothing much impressive about it apart from 
good manners. Um, when did you, your uncle started talking about that? Was that, did he have to do that kind of behind closed doors? Did he, why did he start talking to you about it? Did, did he, he must have had an impulse that that was maybe important for you to understand? He, he was a rat bag um, <laughs> and my family were deeply Christian and he was a drinker and a gambler um, and a swearer and um, a truck driver. And I found the latter the most impressive because I loved vehicles. And so he taught me to drive the truck. And um, it was in the truck that he started talking to me about family. And the rest of the family were really suspicious of him because he was a, a braggart. You know, he was, he was a real um, pain in the neck a lot of the time. But he, in the truck he would say, now there's, we're driving to Lake's entrance with a load of... Uh, potatoes, and we had to pick up fish and bring them back. And he said, well, when we get near Lake's entrance, we're going to start picking up Aboriginal people, and some of them will be your family. And I had no idea. And so he introduced me to um, uh, three fellas on a tray boat at Lake's entrance, and he said, these are your family too. Um, from a different state, and it was terribly confusing, and because there's no one else to talk to about, you know, it took a long time to uh, get anywhere with that. But that he he was he was a genuine man, and um, he had photographs all through the house of various people. I was lucky enough to get a couple of them, but I, I missed a lot because when he died, the family, um, you know, split up all all the stuff in the house, which wasn't much, but all the books and photos were chucked down the tip. Um, and they said, oh, um, Bruce, this is yours, you know, from Uncle Elf. And it was a bloody pot plant, you know, like everyone else got dresses and, you know, dining tables and I got a pot plant. Might have, might have been a very rare um, orchid in that pot plant. I hope didn't throw it out. What was it like, though, Bruce, when you... I guess was there a time when curiosity got the better of you and you kind of started investigating yourself, you know, gone gone beyond sort of being told who was family and was there a time when you went on actually going to ask more questions or actively seek out? And when you did, what was that interface like? What was that cultural kind of... Was it a hurdle for you or them? Yeah. Um, my, um, my daughter was five. We were on the farm at Maramingo and going through the family album and um, uh, she just started pointing at people, saying, who's that, who's that, who's that? And I didn't know and I couldn't tell her. So that's when I started. And um, then... Years after that, my cousins and I started exchanging photographs and stories and documents, and so we were able to start building up a bit of a family picture that way. And it was difficult, it was awkward and embarrassing, but what, what happened to me is I was, I was living in the country, most of my cousins weren't, so I was able to go to older Aboriginal people in the community and... Um, they were, they were astounded at my ignorance and treated me like a fool. 
they treated me like the fool that it was. Not unkindly, but they weren't going to tell me anything. Um, and, you know, they said, look, we can't tell you about that until you acknowledge the history, you know. Because they, they'd say things to me like, you know, when great-grandfather was killed in the war, and I was, a, I was educated in Australia, so I was always taught there was no war on this soil. And they, they said, until you understand that there was a war, um, we can't talk to you. And I, so I went to the you know, library and checked up on them and found that it was clearly demonstrated that there'd been a war in Australia, but that no Australian schoolchild ever learnt about it. <clears throat> well, you certainly, um, just jumping over to, to Dark Emu, that was, I mean, I don't know, in the world of regenerative farming or kind of the circles of farming that we're, we're in, you know, there's a handful of books and Dark Emu certainly in there as kind of the watershed moments for farming and it stands out because it's of Indigenous sort of content. Um, what, um, why did that become an interest to you, the farming side of it? Because I guess you could have gone into all sorts of parts of the culture. Why, 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 the, why the farming or the food? Well, I, I'd written a couple of other um, history books before that. I, I'm a fiction writer, really. That's my trade. But I started writing um, history because I couldn't find my family story in any Australian history book. Um, even Henry Reynolds, um, God bless him, um, wasn't writing the kind of history that I was looking to read. So I wrote the history of Cape Otway, where I was living at the time, because everyone thinks that Latrobe was such a wonderful man, such a kind man, but he was actually involved in one of those massacres down there um, that took the lives of so many people. Um, and I, um, I, I then started investigating more and more of my own family's history and I wrote a book called Convincing Ground about the, mm. the, about the war. It's basically a, a textbook on the war in Australia um, of uh, how the state sanctioned killing of Aboriginal people in dispossession. Isn't this a real cheer-up? Would you like me to tell you a few jokes? <laughs> no. Um, no, we, I can't ne- even we joke need to- about Richmond because I'm so badly burnt from last week when Sydney beat them that um, <laughs> yeah. I haven't recovered. No, we but, need we need to hear it, Bruce. Yeah, um, we convincing ground was about the war, but while I was researching that, I was digging up all this material about um, uh, Aboriginal people growing food, building dams, building houses, uh, building roads. And I thought, you know, I was, I was shocked because I thought, this, you know, I was already at university or had been at university, you know. So whatever it is, 12 years of education or something, not a word. And, you know, I was reading some documents and thinking, well... You know, how come no curriculum has ever included this, this, this stuff? You know, when uh, Charles Sturt was saved by 300 Aboriginal people who were growing grain 
in the very centre of Australia, which is now called Sturt Stony Desert. You know, how, that's a, you know, for regenerative farmers, that's a really important thing to know. Um, how come Australian school children didn't know it? How come Australian school children didn't know that um, Charles, um, Sir Thomas Mitchell rode through grain that was higher than his horse's saddle? The horse had to keep its head up so it could see where it was going, riding through what we now call Mitchell grass, which we uh, managed to um, uh, process on the farm last week to produce a grain that will make sesame seed uh, look like chaff. Um, it's a great grain and uh, very easy to process now that we've got the right technique. Uh, you know, how come that passage in Sir Thomas Mitchell's journey didn't become a centrepiece of Australian history? And what, why did it become uh, Mitchell grass and not its original name? And how come it has now been destroyed and that's where we grow cotton in Australia today? That thirsty plant which requires the soil to be ploughed and then we throw up our hands in disbelief when that soil blows away and goes to New Zealand. We don't need to give any New Zealand anything. They actually, we could recycle some of their prime ministers and that would help. <laughs> um, why, well you asked the question, why not? Why was that removed from, you know, from circulation in schools? And when? Charlie. I know, but for those who haven't read Dark Emu, I think it just needs to be said. Look, I'm trying to lighten the mood. <laughs> no, everyone knew they were Look, going to cop it today. I don't know. Imagine you're a... Yeah, you do. You're the, the head of education in Australia at the Commonwealth level or the state level or something like that, and because you're a history teacher, you've read Sir Thomas Mitchell's diary, you're the journal, and you read that, riding through nine miles of grass higher than the horse's saddle. And you decide then not to include that in the Australian curriculum. What's going on in your mind? Why did you make that decision? It, it is a great question. It's the question I ask myself all the time. Why to make a deliberate decision to exclude that from Australian education? And all the other ministers of, of education, um, all the other school teachers, all the other politicians since have agreed to exclude it so that when, you know, Dark Emu becomes the young Dark Emu and goes into schools, um, people throw up their hands as if it's child molestation, to tell the truth. It was, I mean, it, it wasn't just eliminated from <clears throat> school curriculum. I, I mean, I, from what I understand, you know, reports that went back to England centuries ago was kind of like, was all about alleviating guilt, wasn't it? Well, some people um, did send those stories back to England, but in the case of Lieutenant Gray, some of the things that he wrote about uh, the, the Amfields in Western Australia were eliminated from the report that went back to the Parliament. Um, so there were people consciously pruning uh, the information that was going back to England because in those days all the m large landowner owners were also the magistrates. Mm. They were also the people delivering land. 
selling land um, to other people. So there's a, a high uh, level of motivation um, to hide, hide that information, but how it could happen for 230 years without, without some kind of public debate is, is amazing. And so when, when the new Prime Minister says we will deliver the Uluru Statement in full, I cried. What will that mean? Like, what, what, when they, what will they be delivering? What, will, what changes will we see? Or what, what implications will that have? They can deliver bullshit in a very pretty package. Um, or the government could ask Aboriginal people um, what each community wants. Um, and, you know, in, instead of sending in the army um, to address uh, child mortality um, and education and poor general health. Instead of sending in the army, send in the school teacher, send in the doctor, like you know you read before, and do something humane. Don't do something inhumane. And this is a, a good place to say that. For more information to assist your regenerative journey, come join Charlie and his guests around the kitchen table, an online community of supporters with exclusive access to the regenerative journey interview transcripts, live online Q&A sessions, a chance to engage with other like-minded people and more. Go to www.charliearnett.com.au forward slash the kitchen table. And if you're not totally satisfied with the value of your membership and wish to cancel it within the first two months, we will give you a full 100% refund, no questions asked. Now let's get back to this week's episode. I'm not out of questions, <clears throat> but um, is there any questions from the crowd? Is anyone like bursting to get something out on the record? Come on. Yes, sir. Um, uh, can we do a ro- Can we do a roving? Right. Yes, loud voices. You can use your outside voice. Can I just repeat that just for the for the sake of this? So, um, question was: um, Has Bruce been approached by councils to um, in, engage to help with land management and landscape issues? Absolutely. Yep. Cool. Um. Next question. <laughs> yeah, obviously, to have those discussions is um, really important. But at this stage, no. And I say that with enormous sadness. I'll tell you what. In, in the, with the view to increase the knowledge of um, Aboriginal occupation of the land around Mallacoota, 
I was given a map by one of the brothers from Gunai country, Russell Mullet, who gave me a map of Malakuta, and all, all the language on it is Aboriginal. Mm-hmm. Every headland, every waterway, every uh, beach, everything named it with Aboriginal names. I framed it and I offered it to the Shire Council to go in, into the information centre because I was sick and tired of having people come up to me and say, what are you whinging about? There were no Aboriginal people in Malakuta. And here is this map with all Aboriginal names on it. And I thought, I don't need to argue with people, I just need to show them this map. And the Shire Council, East Gippsland Shire Council, if you have to know, um, their address is in the phone book. Um, <laughs> so they said they couldn't accept it. Really? Uh, on, on I, the, thought, on... I thought it was shocking. Um, and um, uh, the local history society has been incredibly conservative. You know, they think that their best exhibit is a, a rowboat um, owned by a, the man who murdered Malakuta Kitty. They, you know, the, they don't have anything in there about Malakuta Kitty, but they've got the rowboat of the man who murdered her. Um, you know, that's, that's the best the historical society has been able to do until last week when uh, one of the members said, um, we want, we've heard about that map, we'd like to display it in the museum. Mm. And I said, here, here's one already framed, was destined to go in the information centre. So you know, I delivered that last night um, to them, but I was... It, it, it hurts to think that the local council couldn't accept it. Um, why couldn't they accept it? I'll tell you why, because it took us 25 years to find out the site of where Uncle Max Harrison's family were massacred um, in 1870. Um, 25 years of asking around the communities of we had one non-Aboriginal fella who was a terrific man and very gentle and he just kept on probing and probing and probing and probing until one old farmer got sick and tired of Lenny, you know, muck it up his Sundays and he just, he didn't say anything, he just pointed to a spot on the map and we went to that spot and there they were. Wow. <clears throat> I scrubbed that, Bruce. Um, There's an invitation there, isn't there? I think for anyone, anyone on council here from anywhere, any any politicians, anyone know any politicians? I, I'm, I'm I'm astonished. I, I, it's a question I I hadn't even thought to um, to ask. You know, I just thought that would be something that you you have been doing, but clearly not. I talked to a lot of. Um, I have been talking to permaculture groups and farmers groups um, for you know a decade or more, and farmers uh, get a bad rap in this country, thanks to Barnaby. But mainly, you know, farmers generally love their ground. Um, don't always like to tell you how they got got the ground, but they do love the soil. They love the trees. And, you know, some of the oldest farms that have been held in family hands for the longest, 
are the ones that still have Aboriginal artefacts, still have mm. Aboriginal marked trees. They're the ones I go to. And the history of those farms is horrible, but the family has kept the evidence mm. and for which we have to be grateful, even though the conversations are uh, really, really difficult. But um, I, I look for the day when local shire councils, state government, federal government, want to hear these stories. Um, the, uh, the, the time of Indigenous occupation being moving in Australia, you know, it's kind of accepted generally the 65,000 years since and that kind of fits into the narrative of moving out of Africa 70,000 years ago and taking 5,000 years to get here. Um, but you've often said it's 120,000 years, and I was wondering if you could share with us what you said. Jim Bowler, who was involved with Mungo Man, Mungo Lady, who are in back in the news again now um, because of a, a reburial that mm. uh, wasn't apparently uh, with the agreement of some Aboriginal people in the district. Um, that's a really sad case uh, that it should happen like that. But Jim Bowler um, did a lot of the white scientific work at Lake Mungo and uh, most recently, he uh, did work at Point Pierce in Warrnambool um, and came up with a date of human occupation of 120,000 years. Um, it, there are people who contest it, um, but they don't contest the science. You know, the science is clear. You know, it's been peer-reviewed, been, been cleared. Why, why is it contested? You ask, you can ask them, why do you contest this? And they'll so, say it's too different from the history. You know, isn't science science? It's not different. It's science. Um, and it, it's really disappointing. And, you know, I am being pr provocative. You know, I keep on saying 120,000 years because I'm, I'm trying to get a reaction. I want people to start thinking about it. If it's you know, we know it's 65,000 years because the science at Mujabibi uh, has been accepted. That that grinding dish is 65,000 years old, which I was telling the kids today, they were the, the humans who first learnt to grind grain into flour and made the first bread 45,000 years before Egyptians. Yeah. Um, this is a, a huge fact for Australia um, to learn and love, but the resistance to it is incredible. And so I keep on saying 120,000 years, even though there's a small active um, portion of the press that um, get very annoyed when I do so. They call themselves acquired Australians, noisiest bastards on earth, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> but, you know, I, I think, it, I think it, it's creeping in to, you know, the Australian psyche that this is a very old culture and was very, very successful because no other culture has been able to sustain itself without going to war. And, you know, this Charlie, you may, may not have been going to ask about war, but, you know, I think for a, a group of elders, however long ago it was, I don't know, to sit down and decide we're going to do, design the social um, map of this land and we're going to have 400 separate nations 
and each of those 400 separate nations will be responsible only for their portion of this land. They will be responsible to be in total contact with all others via that mesh of uh, culture lines that go across the continent. And we know that that operated really well because when people in Western Australia sing about the whale, they sing it in Ewan language from the exact opposite side of the continent. Are they singing in Ewan language or is it sung in their language? Who cares? What it means is when I go to Western Australia and hear that song, I understand it in my language. That means that there was total communication from east to west, north to south in this continent. It's a huge thing. But those people with their genius of, of understanding how, they, how to manage humans uh, decided that everyone had their base and they could travel other places, they could send stories, they could send trade goods to other places, but they could not take another person's land. Because they were humans, they were allowed to bash their wife. Their wife was allowed to bash them because, you know, barangaroo. Um, you know, it's there. We have to talk about that too. Um, they could wake up feeling jealous of their neighbour and react violently. They could be cruel. They could be kind. They could be loving because they were human. Not because they were black, because we are human and we are capable of all those things. But to manage it, to manage the human in a way where you eschewed war is genius. You know, isolation probably helped a lot uh, because all that group of people over that this massive continent could remain in contact and remain at peace by using symbologies, spiritual forms. Um, but but it is it might be good luck, partly good luck, but it's also genius. And we need to export that genius to Ukraine and um, to the Middle East. You know, that ability to perceive the human without war, God, it's... Mm. Pardon me. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's transferable into bullion. Mm. Mm. You know, this should be Australia's great product to the world mm. and, and not in some corny way. Not, we don't want, um, you know, we don't want holy rollers uh, making a cult out of this. It's not a cult. It's just a bit of human behaviour that is worth replicating. And uh, I, um, I, I look, I look at, I look at those old people, and I, I really shake my head um, at the their ability to grasp the human condition. You know, because when I was at university, I studied history. They wouldn't let me study Australian history at Melbourne University because they weren't... It, they didn't offer it as a subject because nothing had happened in Australia worthy of history. That's what they told me. Um, but I just think that this is something that the country can explore. We can explore it together and we can enjoy each other's company while we do it. And I think we can solve a lot of human conditions. As, and 
at the, at the same time as talking about sustainable farming, which was what we're supposed to be doing. No, 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 we don't. No, 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 that's, um, that's just a little bit of you it. Know, because to grow perennials is a really important thing in Australia. I, I think the Mitchell grass as opposed to cotton mm. is a really good argument to have. And I think Little Proud, who is now the, the um, leader of the National Party, is up for that conversation. I, I yeah. have a photograph of him with a copy of Dark Emu. He was unafraid to accept it, even though most of his party saw it as a poisonous Bible. I think he was, he was going to... He'd be invited along and he... Yep. Too busy? Yep. Um, you grab that one. <coughs> Thanks, Bruce. Just a, 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 not a segue, but certainly in a, a parallel. What you've just said just blows my mind on, on, on a number of levels. I'm currently reading a book called Song of Increase, and it's about bees and the unity of bees. And what you said about song lines and language being spoken from one side to the other, and the respect <coughs> and the culture that's not based on war is, is, is nearly exactly the way the bees operate. And the songs they sing, the unity they have, they're only as strong as the unity of the hive and their communication is with every other hive on the planet, basically. It's fascinating stuff. If you want to blow your mind about bees, and they're fascinating anyway, grab that. But that's just such a wonderful... And I was kind of struggling with, well, that's great for the bees, but, like, what is that? what can we learn from that? So just to hear that, what you just said, Bruce, gives me a lot of hope. It's you know it's it's not it's the same you know us as a culture we have we have well I mean indigenous culture here in Australia has done that and I dare say that it may have been the case do you think it's the case in North America or in other other cultures do you think they had that that connection and that kind of that um, it may be called something different they might have had song lines but not called them song lines is that is that a is that just an indigenous Framework? Um, I, I don't know. Um, I talk to First Nation American people, First Nation Canadian people, First Nation Indian people a lot. Um, and I really admire, you know, First Nation Canadian American law, um, spirit, spirituality, you know. Um, it's wonderful. But it it didn't come without war, and those people would fight each other. Um, so when I was at university, I was taught that war is a natural condition of man. <coughs> Pardon me. And they, they just ruined your recording, sorry. I don't edit anything, Not for Victoria. That's all right. Um, but <laughs> what if it wasn't the natural condition of man? And they meant men. There is hope, Bruce, and I'm pleased to hear it. Um, Talking about, um, you were mentioning before, you know, I guess they were, you know, Dr Ron's question about the 65,000 years versus 120, I mean, they were trying to um, discredit that. I mean, you, you, unfortunately... um, you know, you were, had been people had tried to discredit you some years ago, and maybe still trying to have a crack. Um, without going into all the detail, what what was their motivation? Was it was it a, was it a similar thing that there's this 
bloke who's come up with <clears throat> this you know, book that was rewriting the history, is that too hard for them to swallow? Was there some other agenda? Would they just had nothing better to do? What, what do you... I know that was a tough time. It was, it was a... Do you have a sense of what that was, why they did that? It was a tough time. And it's still tough. Um, it's changed me, uh, but it hasn't changed the history of the country. Oh, hang on. You have that one. Yeah, you have that one. I'll have this one. No, <laughs> well, this is lighter. No, that's actually... Uh, that's, that'll do. Both got a green light. This smells yeah. bad. This okay. Um, no, it, it, it was a tough time, but um, it, it hasn't changed the history of the country. Um, and I think there were agendas. I think there were plenty of people with vested interests who didn't want um, a different story about <coughs> pardon me, of our history being told. The bloke who started the website against Dark Emu um, was a farm chemical distributor. Um, <laughs> was there a vested interest? I don't know. <coughs> uh, I just find it disappointing that the only way to have a conversation is to attack um, and to attack at you know, every level instead of having the, the beautiful conversation that we can have where we, we can choose to disagree with each other. We can have different opinions but we do it without raising our voice. That's what we, we need to do in this country. Look at the level of political debate in this country and in, and in our sister America and in the UK, the level of debate is terrible. It's a, we should be ashamed to let our children listen to the news at that level of idiocy and selfishness and meanness. It's the meanness that surprises, the cruelty. So this is a conversation we've got to have. We've got to have a debate about 120,000 years. We've got to have a debate about perennial plants against annual plants. We've got to have all these debates. Um, but if we can't convince each other, then let's not go to war. Um, let's continue talking and talking and talking and talking because while you're talking, you're not shooting. Bruce, do you think there's... <clears throat> we, we talked touched on government, politics and so on a bit. Um, do you think there's any point in... Like going there with them. I mean, is you know, is, is time better spent just getting on with what you're doing with Black Duck Foods down there at Malakuta and just kind of getting on with it, and not necessarily asking. Not that you're asking for permission, but I mean, is my sense is across the board, the only way that we get things done is just go and do it, and then the government will maybe catch up because they go, oh, hang on, that's popular. I'll go and I'll, I'll support that now. Is that is that kind of where we're at? I think if you want to get things done, you just go and do them. But um, I, I met um, an Hawaiian um, woman in New Zealand years ago at a conference. Um, I didn't meet her, I just saw her on the stage and she said something that stopped me in my tracks. Uh, she said, we need to change our countries. She was talking about First Nations countries all around the Pacific we need to change our countries. We need to get greater acceptance of our history. We need greater educational health opportunities for our children. 
But in doing that, we must leave no one behind. Um, It's easy to say that, leave no one behind, very hard to do it. It stopped me because I was was a child of um, uh, Whitlam years. I wasn't a child, but, um, you know, the crash through or crash mentality of of Gough Whitlam seemed to be very successful, but... Uh, then I heard that woman say, leave no one behind. You have to convince everything, everyone. Otherwise, they are disaffected members of your community who will act as reactionaries behind you. Leave no one behind, she said. And so it takes time. But see, that's, that's the how I see Aboriginal culture is that it took time and it still happens today. You you have a meeting, you can't make an agreement and this is what one of those old people who helped me so many years ago in the 70s and 60s said, you know, it's better not to make a decision than to make a bad one. So if you're in a meeting and you're having a disagreement and I've, I've seen this so often since then, where no agreement is made and, you know, people get frustrated. So we came here to make an agreement about this or that, um, but the, the, the wise old heads said, well, let's not make a bad decision. We'll come back another time. And what happens? You know, those people who disagreed with each other they go home, they have a feed, they pat the dog, they do the vegetables, they go to sleep, they wake up, and they've changed their mind. So what they thought last night, they no longer think this morning. And so if you spend the time on negotiation, on human relationships, you might find that in six months or the next day or two years down the track that suddenly you agree. And I've seen it operate. It frustrates the hell out of government departments when it happens because they've got a time agenda and they want to stick to it, they want to improve Aboriginal life, and then uh, the, the community say, oh, we, we, we're not ready to make that decision yet. And, um, but it, it works. You know, democracy, which Aboriginal people invented, is the slowest form of government on earth, and that's what makes it so beautiful. Uh, Bruce, what are you usually, for those who aren't my Patreon members, is anyone listening to the Regenerative Journey podcast? Is anyone not? Is anyone not listening to it? No. Oh, I can't believe it. Get out. Um, <laughs> I usually ask a set of questions after the interview, and for those who are Patreon members, you're probably wondering, where is this special bonus content you haven't been given yet? You'll get it just... So I usually ask these questions after the, the main um, interview, but I want to ask Bruce now, because you're all here, and it'd be rude if I left it out. Um, but that's, don't, don't let that stop you from being a Patreon member and going on my website and forking out 10 bucks a month. That's all it is, two crappy coffees, and you get a bit of a plug. Can I give a quick plug, Bruce? Why not? Um, You get a video from me every week, which I should have done one today. I'm going to get in trouble just ranting about whatever's going on in the world. Uh, A webinar once a month. You get a webinar with a guest. 
Um, so I'm going to hit Bruce up at some point if I can track you down at Malakuta there. Um, a webinar and you get transcripts of all the interviews and a whole lot of well, some other stuff which I can't talk about here in public. Um, so, Bruce, one of the questions is what are you irate about? Sydney Swans. <laughs> okay. No, anger, anger doesn't get us anywhere, you know. Um, I, there's a lot of anger in the Aboriginal community. There's a lot of pain, you know, but it does get us nowhere. Anger, you know, might galvanise you into action, but often the action um, is not positive. Um, you know, thought is much preferable to anger. If you're anger, if you're angry, um, think your way through it. Um, because anger has been a horrible, um, horribly negative force in the world. And you don't want angry men deciding how the world runs because they've had their chance, they've made a bloody mess of it, you know. Let's try and find a few calm women. I think Sydney did it last weekend. Um, what about what are you excited about, Bruce? I'm I'm bloody excited about a kunjin winyu, which is a salad vegetable that grows in salt water, um, which is a brilliant flavour, um, and is going to be so great for regenerative Australia because. On lands where the land has been spoiled by salt, this plant will grow and it will help regenerate that soil. I'm also incredibly excited um, by vanilla lily, um, which is a, a, a translucent white vegetable that is um, a snappy and so beautiful to taste. It is uh, better than any vegetable I've ever eaten, and it is so prolific. It's a perennial plant, and what excites me is seeing the young Ewan people go up into the garden and lift a plant with the garden fork, not take it out of the ground, but just lift it up and harvest the tubers. And off one plant, sometimes we get 30 tubers, and we, and we leave 20 in there. That's incredibly exciting because it's telling me that there's a food product here uh, that Australia's going to love and here's a plant that will produce it without water, without fertiliser. What is that going to mean for our continent? If we can grow food like that without using water and fertiliser, um, for in, in terms of the environment, in terms of sequestering carbon, it's brilliant. But the flavour is incredible. I, look, when we, when we were cleaning uh, Mitchell grass seed last week, the young fellas were dancing. They got such a buzz mm. out of seeing that clean seed come through and, and to taste it and to use it because then we went and made bread from it. Um, that are so exciting. So, yeah, they're the things that excite me. Having my boat back in the water, my good friend, the boat that I had during the fires, um, she was all sorts of a mess, you know. I couldn't get it to start. You know, the seats were ruined. Um, you know, 
she was just a mess anyway. I took it up to Eden and they fixed it for me and I put it in the water on Saturday and it was just joyous. I could see the cormorants again and the cormorants have a a very bad press in the avian world. Um, You know, they're not the greasy fish-smelling bird you think. They're highly intelligent (laughs) and they're just beautiful company. Shags get a bad rap too, don't they? (laughs) It's a bird. Uh, for anyone who has a farm and has a dams and fish it's a is, is a shag a cormorant? A shag is a cormorant. There you go, learn something already. Bloody hell. Don't know what you're paid to get in tonight. <laughs> <laughs> That's the bit of bonus content you get just for being here. Um, let's. I've got one more question. I've got two more questions, but I'm just going to, conscious of the time, a um, couple more questions from the crowd. Ryan, where's, where's the boss? couple more, I reckon. Anyone... Bursting with questions. Oh, they're everywhere. Is that bloody hairy bloke up the back there? Yeah, don't ask him. Arts here, where were the Can you repeat that, Bruce, for the listeners? Yeah, how can Aboriginal people engage with local council and... Um, the other way around, how can the Aboriginal people start to not have a conversation with the staff? If non-Aboriginal organisations like councils, etc., want to start a conversation <laughs> with Aboriginal people, would, you know, I, would, I would like to see us go right back so that those people are aware of the history of Australia um, and so they're not turning up and um, saying in meetings, uh, as I have heard countless times, what you people need to do is this. You know, we actually know what to do. We don't need to be told what to do. We need help to do it because we no longer have control of the land. We just need help to do it. And so I, I would like... Um, those organisations to know their history well. The hardest thing on earth uh, for an Aboriginal person is every day of their life have to explain their Aboriginality, uh, have to explain who they are, why they are. Um, it just It's boring and it's perpetual. So it would be really good if non-Aboriginal people turned up with some knowledge about the history of the country and... Um, the history of the community that they're in, and already have friendships in the Aboriginal community. I've, you know, people often ask me that question, what do I do now? And I say teapot. Um, fill your teapot with fresh leaves, put the boiling water on it, share it with an Aboriginal person. And because so many Aboriginal people have told me uh, that 
when we've started this process in community, trying to bring non-Aboriginal organisations into the community, um, I've had so many Aboriginal, um, particularly women, say, I've never had a white person in my house and I was reluctant to do it this time, but you nagged me, you know. Um, It's a good process. It's a healing process. It's excruciatingly embarrassing um, for two people who who have no knowledge of each other to sit down and have that first cup of tea. Mm. But then suddenly you, you know the name of that lady's dog. She knows the name of your kid's. And that's a, called a relationship. And without the relationship, there's no healing. There's no knowledge. It has to be a relationship. So it might sound like a, a pretty tepid way to, to start, but I, I think it's all about relationships. Um, you know, in my district, local Aboriginal team wins seven premierships in a row and gets shut out of the comp- competition too good or was there a a residual resentment you know so you can't have that relationship without without knowing each other and you can't solve difficulties in the relationship by banning things you know it has to be all up front and it's going to be it is really embarrassing it's really hard work in the first instances but after a couple of hundred years you'll find it quite easy Any more? How do we learn with manners? Oh, good manners, sorry. How do we learn good manners? I think good manners are innate. I think humans are good at good manners. They're also terrific at bad manners. We just have to choose. I think we know what to do. We know how to be kind and share. We just don't do it all the time. If we chose to do it, it would make a different world. I know it's not a satisfying answer, but it, it is the answer. It's kind of, it kind of feels like it's not, it's not that difficult. Yeah, look. Look at Costa up the back there. He wants to ask. I can't even see him. Look at the Look at him. Has he got a question? You can't see him. You're not looking. Oh, there you go. I've got nervous spectacles. Uh, yep, mm-hmm. down here. Yeah, Um, I don't really understand what cancel culture is. I, is it sort of denial sort of thing? Well, I guess it's, it's the sense of not necessarily denial, almost trying to uh, eliminate uh, what's happened by obviously taking that statute and this and that. Books and whatnot about things that happen, it's almost like a tell of the rather than. Erasing history. Erasing history. Mm. 
Like, oh. well, I just had a thought. I mean, what happened two hundred and two hundred over the last two hundred and so years? I don't think it was the, I don't think it was the original cancel culture. But thank you. That's just dawned on me that that's like I've just heard that that expression. What I don't know two years, in the last two years. That's right. Yeah, it's a good question, you know. And I remember uh, when they were starting to pull down statues in Australia or daub them in red paint, you know, Matthew Flinders in the centre of Melbourne. And uh, because I was in Melbourne on, on that occasion, you know, the press asked me to talk about the, uh, the statue that had been defaced, so-called defaced. And it, it really... Um, it really tests you because, you know, uh, one of the statues was uh, John Batman because um, John Batman is credited with discovering Melbourne even though it was a fraud. The treaty that you signed with Aboriginal people was a fraud. Um, but do we deface that statue of John Batman? And um, instead of cancelling it, I think we should replace it. Or, or put another, another sculpture, another um, memento beside it. In Gippsland, um, it, it's said to be the uh, discovered by Macmillan, Angus Macmillan. Well, he wasn't even the first white man to ride through Gippsland. And when he did ride through Gippsland, he had an Aboriginal person who he was leading with a uh, pistol to his forehead. Um, that's how he discovered Gippsland. But there are, tr- there are monuments and plaques to Mitchell all through that country. And I drive past one in the middle of the night quite often, and the temptation um, to mutilate the, uh, the, you know, the plaque is huge. Um, I've never done it because I'm such a good boy. But um, the temptation's there. But... What, what I think we should do um, is to make sure there's another monument there um, which talks about um, the boy that survived the massacre on the Broadrib River to tell the other side of that story and, and to tell it with full heart, not with the kind of ambiguity that, that you read on a, um, a Macmillan plaque is kind of disgraceful. I mean, it's, it's dog-whistling. And um, we can we can do a lot better than that. So I don't I don't believe in destroying anything. I don't think I'm not a book burner. You know, even books like the one that argued against Dark Emu, don't burn that book. Let's have the discussion about it because the funny thing about that book um, was that it agree, it agrees with me so so much. Um, it, it's, it relies on an argument about. What's a farmer? Um, what's a hunter-gatherer? And you know, I in in dark email, I I'm not really um, obsessed with hunters and gatherers. You know, uh, great lifestyle if you can do it. But it's just that our people were not hunters and gatherers. We did hunt, we did gather, we still do it. That's why I'm so glad that the boat's in the water because I'll go hunting as soon as I can. Um, but. The, the thing about it was that 
was a kind of a false argument and was trying to cancel um, Dark Emu. And uh, I just think we have a better discussion. Instead of destroying the monument, put another one there. You know, William Barrack um, was such a great man. And the Victorian government bought back one of his paintings from America uh, the other day. And so that's, that's adding. It's not cancelling anything. It's adding something back. William Cooper. Um, William Cooper, Victorian Aboriginal man. During World War II, he walked on um, Parliament in Canberra um, and he said... The destruction of the Jews should not happen. An Aboriginal man walked on Canberra to tell our parliament that Jewish people should not be slaughtered. Now, that was a radical view in in Australia at that time. A radical view. And it was an Aboriginal man who objected, who stood up and objected. And if you go to um, Israel, um, in, there's a room dedicated to William Cooper. Um, Aboriginal man never went to school. You know, that should shame Australia. There's no William Cooper room in Australia. Mm. There's one in Israel. Let's do, let's do uh, one more question. Did you have one, Costa? Did you put your hand up before? Two, two. No, might have bumped the thing. Two, two. Good. I'm just continuing with that theme um, around identity. Like, names are so important, as you've been saying. They inform us about identity, they inform our relationships, they connect us to place, they share story. So we've been touching on that through these last few questions. Um, I see uptake and connection happening at local levels with naming of places. I had an interesting experience when I was in transit the other day to learn about a major project in the city, which most people probably know is happening, a major railway, multi-billion dollars. And um, are we even open to debate about the name of such a big piece of infrastructure? And did you know what it's, what it's being proposed to be called? Have you heard that? There's a major bit of um, infrastructure, major bit of infrastructure that's being constructed in Sydney, and the question is, have you, do you know about that? And is there a whiff that it might be... Acknowledged or called a indigenous, an appropriate indigenous name? No. No, so this is a new rather one. Yeah. That goes from the new airport, the proposed airport to a suburb where they're changing it. And um, it's already been, I mean, I know that elders have been, some elders have been out there, but the decision has been made by those friends actually. So what's it called? Bradfield. The Bradfield Expressway, I think. Uh, Railway. And there you go. Another. Well, we've got a lot to... Um, we've got a lot of ground to make up, haven't we? 
But Brad, yeah, yeah another uh, example. Um, we were talking about um, uh, using Aboriginal names, Costa. Yeah, um, I, th- I think it's I think it's one of the great healing processes yeah. in Australia is to learn those names. I'm, about six, seven years ago, I was listening to um, ABC broadcast um, of the Test cricket, and the two commentators, well-known people, were laughing uh, about the Gabba because it's called the Gabba after Woolen Gabba, uh, the Aboriginal name for it. And they were saying, um, you know, and laughing up their sleeves, saying, where did you get a name like that from? You know, how, how stupid. You know, why don't we call it the Oval or something, you know? And I thought, those two men <coughs> just passed up the greatest opportunity to talk about Australian history and they didn't even know it. Mm. They didn't know where the name Wollongabba came from, or if they did, they were pretending not to know it. And it, it, was, it was a really lost opportunity, and we can have, have these opportunities every day. I, I'm on the board of First Languages in Australia, and I've been on it for 20 years, and I have been trying all those 20 years to get the um, tourism department in Australia, state and federal, um, local council, state governments, federal governments, to look at a process of renaming everything Mm. and not getting rid of um, one name, not cancelling names, but adding other names, dual naming of places. And I'd like to see it where the community are engaged and employed to provide that name and to provide the authenticity of the name and the story behind the name and the meaning of the name because these things are are so important um, for our country's psyche. So we don't want to go back and arguing and, you know, giggling about the name Woolen Gabba. We should be saying it with pride. Um, But 230 years later... Not to know uh, what, what that means, you know, really shows how tenuous um, the grip of non-Indigenous Australia is to this land. Um, the Geelong footy ground used to be called Cardinium Park um, and now it's called Brain Fade Australia or something, I don't know. It's named the sponsor, after, sponsor's name. Sponsor's yeah. name. It's, and, and it's had about eight sponsors' names. Yeah. I can't keep up with them no. because, you know, there's a three-year cycle in um, sponsorships and um, it's, it's called something different every year, Skills Stadium or something. Um, it's ridiculous. Um, they had this perfect name, Cardinia Park, and Cardinia uh, is a Wathaurong word and it means the rays of the early morning sun. What sporting ground in the world has such a gracious name. You know, White City, Kuyong, Kuyong mean, means eel. Mm. You know, we, we had one. Mm. When we got rid of Kuyong and we got rid of Cardinium, we had it there. We had it there. And, you know, a smart um, tourist marketer could drag a, a, a jet line a week to Australia with people who wanted to go to Cardinu Park, mm. who wanted to go to Kuyong. You know, smart business persons could do that. But all these decisions 
are going to come and there are going to be smart business people involved in them. But when will they ask themselves how can Aboriginal people benefit from this? There has to be a structure so that when Aboriginal culture is used, Aboriginal people benefit. It's not rocket science. It can be done easily. Uh, you have to do it when you use certain words in your company's logo. Um, you know, you can't use, um, you know, John Deere tractors willy-nilly. You have to pay for it. Mm. And when people use Aboriginal culture and words, they should expect to pay for it. And uh, it'll, it'll be so exciting for the country when we adopt that um, way of thinking about our country and taking pride in it. You know, jumping on, you know, uh, a train in New York and someone laughing at your accent and you say, uh, you know, but why don't you come down to Cardinia Park and watch a game of AFL? You'll be so excited because the Yanks actually love AFL. Um, oh, I'm in Sydney. Um, <laughs> um, but these opportunities are there for us. They can be really healing. But, and there will be money made from all of them. But how can Aboriginal people and communities benefit from it? It's a disgrace to see what's happened to the macadamia nut and to kakadu plum um, and how Aboriginal people have been excluded from the benefit. Mm. We can do so much better than that. And we can do, and it's a healing process for it. It's, it's palpable, it's there. We can grab hold of it and say, this is what we're going to do. And when um, Albanese um, said we're going to adopt the, the uh, statement from the heart in full, it was transformative. It's, it's easy, we can do it. But so far, we've chosen not to do it. I mean, it's a great, opportunity, great example of an opportunity that is staring someone in the face, government, state, federal, I don't know. Um, but, you know, it kind of reeks of, I don't know, there's opportunity, but no-one's picking that up. So is it all a bit sort of shallow, a lot of these... Um, uh, the discussions around conciliation or still the old word, reconciliation. Um, I've got one last question. i got one there. for doing that. He looks, he looks very happy in that photo to have received the Uluru Statement, whereas Malcolm Turnbull, when it was delivered to him, knocked it back before lunchtime. So uh, perhaps if we could get the Pope in the new Cabinet. Um... <laughs> we'll get the Pope down here um, naming, mm. naming infrastructure. Um, last question, Bruce. It's the one I finished my interviews with. For those who are Patreon members, you'll know exactly 
what question am I about to ask Bruce? Bruce, we're driving along. Is there a big road down at uh, Malakuta? Or is it highway? It's just imagine yeah, you're Prin- on the closest highway. Princess Highway. You're on the Princess Highway burning along the, well, well, below the speed limit. And there's a billboard on the side of the road and it's blank. And everyone who goes past it can see a statement, a word, a question, a phrase that you are allowed to put on there. You can have both sides, okay, the oncoming and, you know, north, south, east, west, whatever. What would you put on there? Through the mother. That's when, in my community, um, when we begin or finish uh, a statement or a sentence, we say through the mother. Because, and, um, you know, we, we recognise that we all, we've all come through the mother and the earth being our mother, we will go back to the mother. Um, so as soon as you start thinking about the earth as your mother, if you respect your mother, you will n- not hurt her. You will do anything you can for her comfort um, and for her recognition. And so I'd put, I'd, I'd put that through the mother. We come through the mother's heart. Do you want something on the other side? Go Tigers. <laughs> Bruce, um, I can't tell you what a wonderful um, evening I've had. I know there's probably lots of sore bums out there. Um, but that was fascinating. I had no idea that we were going to cover so much ground and weave so many wonderful things into that conversation. Um, I kind of wasn't surprised because I we've had a chat before and I've listened to you many a time. But I've got to say what an honour it is to be here with you um, again, and I hope it's not the last time. Um, I'd love to get down to the farm at Malakuta. Um, I'd love you to start working with council and government and there's lots of things I think um, that this world needs from you, you know. Um, hope to not, not, not too much, no pressure, Bruce. Um, can I, and I, can I thank you all for being here tonight because you didn't have to be here. You could have been at home cooking, sleeping, being on a Zoom with someone or something um, and I really appreciate the fact that we've got a hall here full of um, sore bums, but hopefully, you know, minds that are a little more, um, not so much open, but just willing to, to help, you know, and help heal. And, um, and Tim, thank you for the facilities as well. Really appreciate that. And Ryan for, for organising this, um, which, you know, I don't know, we'll have a chat. Maybe we'll do this more often. I think this is just a wonderful, wonderful thing. And the fact is, what I love about it is we're in Sydney. We're in an urban area. We're in a suburb and it's, we're full and you're full. You know, the room is full and you're full now, um, listening in this case to Uncle Bruce. So um, thank you for your time. Bruce, thank you. And this episode is going to be the fastest turnaround we've ever done. It'll be out next Tuesday. So um, enjoy yourselves. We, I don't know what Bruce is up to. He might be just bolting out of here. Um, I'm going to go and drain the spuds because I'm about to blow a gasket. But <laughs> but I'll be back to have a chat. And, Ryan, over to you, mate. Thank you so much.
This podcast is produced by Rhys Jones at Jaeger Media. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to subscribe, share, rate and review. For more episode information, please head over to www.charliearnett.com.au.